Well, church, it's a pleasure to be here with you to open the Word of God, and, and I believe that as we gather this morning, God has something important to say to us, and it speaks to the moment that we're in. You know, we, we live in a time where, where it seems that many of us, and when I say many of us, I just mean Christians, I just mean believers, and particularly many of us who are believers in this country, we seem to have forgotten some very important truths about who God is and who we are as we relate to the world around us. And one of the things that we're looking at today is kind of how we treat those that maybe don't treat us so well or that we don't like. And what are some patterns that we see today? Uh, I think one of the things that we've all experienced is that moment where uh, you, you have a, an encounter with someone online. Right? You maybe, maybe it's, a, you know, it's a Facebook post or it's a, I don't know how, again, I don't know all these things that the kids are on, Instagram and, and whatever else. Uh, that's probably like old already now, right? Like kids probably aren't on there. Uh, but Snapchat and all these like, but you know, you, you, you see something on there and you have this reaction and you just let that reaction uh, kind of uh, regurgitate onto the keyboard and into, and into the, the social media and out there for the world. And maybe afterwards you think, oh, I probably, probably shouldn't have written that. But you know what really happens most of the time? Is that because you've got this feed that's just scrolling and scrolling and scrolling, by the time you've written it and hit send, you've already forgotten about it. And so you may never go back and wonder, hey, was that a good idea? In the same manner, we see people who profess Christ in the media, in politics, all different segments of, of the world in our country, or, you know, segments of, of our culture and society who will talk about Jesus with one breath and then in the next breath speak words of malice and even hatred. And it just, it's almost like there's no filter button, there's no filter left for many of us in culture and our society today because in part we've become accustomed to just having these knee-jerk reactions. And in fact, a lot of times uh, when something potentially uh, problematic or potentially aggravating happens, people want a response immediately. They want a response from, from any kind of public figure, from any kind of leader, but also just from each of us. Hey, what do you think? And imagine if someone said, what do you think about hot topic A? And your response was, I don't know, give me a month and let me think about that and see how it plays out a little bit before I respond. What would they say? What would they do? I think they might actually kind of laugh at you because that's such an out-of-sorts and out-of-character response for most people. But the Word of God has a lot to say about how we treat one another, about how we speak to one another. And I want to suggest to you that the context in which these wor- from which these words come was much more antagonistic to the faith than the context we live in. And so there is no, you know, out for us as believers just because the things happening in our society we don't like. So we've been talking about Romans chapter 12 the last few weeks, actually, working our way through. Uh, And at the beginning of Romans chapter 12, Paul tells us uh, to become living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. 
and that we need to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And so I want to encourage you this morning to say this. It is actually okay, hear me out, it's actually okay to not have the mind of Christ because nobody starts with the mind of Christ. Paul doesn't say something like, hey, if you don't already have the mind of Christ, why don't you consider having a transformation of your mind and your thinking? He doesn't say, you know, some of you don't need this message. I'm sure you've got this down. Some of you, you know, maybe you grew up in, in a church. Maybe you grew up in a Christian home. Your mind is probably already appropriately formed to the mind of Christ. So you're good. Right? Does he say that? No. His expectation meaning the Holy Spirit's expectation, meaning the Father's expectation, and therefore what should be our expectation is that none of us actually have yet had our minds fully conformed to that of Christ. And so we all need to be transformed. And the good news of that is that if you feel, if you're already feeling this morning like, is he talking about me? (laughs) If you're already feeling that, and maybe you're not, but if you are, then you're in good company because I'm talking about myself I'm talking about everyone else other than Jesus. So we all, remember, we all fall short of the glory of God. We all are sinners in need of grace. We all are people who are in our future destined to be formed into the image of Jesus, but not yet fully. We live in that space and that tension. So even as believers in Jesus, uh, don't feel like today... Uh, this is a word of condemnation, but it's a word of hope, okay? And, and I've said this, I think, on every sermon since we got to chapter 12. But as Paul shifts from talking about theology to talking about how we live, he doesn't mean to, he's not intending to have us forget all the theology that he just taught and now get to the stuff about what do I do? He's actually inviting us to incorporate all that he said into our understanding of what it means to live as a, to be a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. And first and foremost in that must be that the righteous live by faith. So this isn't about you trying harder to be better for Jesus. It's about each one of us trusting Jesus more and more to live through us so that what truly is the mind of Christ is what is acted out in our lives. So let's read in Romans. We're going to start in... Uh, let's, let's start. We, we, read this, we read this already, um, but let's start in verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but willing to associate with people of low position. And do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heat burning coals 
on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Is this not the most countercultural uh, 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 most oppositional to the world's stance that you've read in a long time? I mean, this is literally, it's literally the opposite of what our society and what many Christians are encouraging us to do. We live in a time where we are there are literally, I don't know if you guys have read about this or talked to people about this, but there's literally a fight going on in the church right now, literally, of whether we should love our enemies or whether we should back them into a corner and beat them into submission. And I, I'm exaggerating a little tiny bit, but not very much. I mean, it's, it was almost surprising to me. I read an article a couple of months ago where there was this Christian leader, a recognized Christian leader who was saying, you know, the whole thing where we should be gentle and meek and like Jesus, that doesn't work in our culture today. We need to be big and loud and aggressive and grandiose. You're literally saying that to be like Jesus doesn't work in this culture today. And then all these Christians from different backgrounds started taking sides. And I have to admit, as I was reading this and watching this unfold, and you know, part of it happens on social media, but part of it's just happening in, in uh, uh, you know, churches and, and schools, you know, you know, Christian colleges and universities. It's happening um, in, in, among Christian politicians. This conversation's happening. And I just, I thought to myself, how is it, how is it that this is even an open conversation? How could it be that someone could make the case that our culture is so bad that we shouldn't act like Jesus anymore because it doesn't work? And I have to admit, my first thought was, what culture did they think Jesus lived in? I don't know if you guys have heard of these people called the Romans. (laughs) Have you heard of these Romans? The Romans were this, they were, you know, you don't describe them as this wonderful, godly, and, and kind of happy, nice, uh, uh, gentle people, right? They were a people who, who you know, if you, if you cross the emperor, if you cross the military, if you cross the governor, I mean, you can be dead in a very short order. And in fact, most of the people who lived in the Roman Empire were not happily in the Roman Empire. They had been conquered by the Romans They'd been dispersed so that they couldn't band together and rebel. And then they'd been forced to either pay tribute or serve as, as vassals in this empire for this little city in Italy. It's incredible. The power of the Roman Empire was really the extension of the will of a, of a small group of people in a small little city on, on the southern uh, tip of Europe. They exerted that power by being ruthless. And if you know anything about their culture, not only did they have this whole, you know, pantheon of gods and goddesses, but the emperor himself required that the people treat him as a god. He was their religion. And you say, well, so if meekness and humility and gentleness, loving your enemies, 
if that's what Jesus taught at that point in time with that type of government, with that type of culture, with that type of society, why in the world would we think that we should do anything different now? When we get to our verse today, do not repay anyone evil for evil, verse 17. The assumption is that people are going to do evil things to you. Right? The assumption is that evil things are going to happen to you. And I think in this country, many of us Christians, we have come so accustomed to being a dominant group in this country. We've become so accustomed to having lots of political power. We've become so accustomed to having uh, kind of the, the culture on our side, so to speak, at least with morality or, you know, kind of the whole idea of, uh, I don't go to church, but I'd like for my kids to go to church because it's a good place to be. I don't believe in Jesus, but I'm glad there's a church on the corner because it's good for our society. You know, that used to be how people thought and talked about the church, even here in New England. But we have now entered a phase where people think, I don't go to church and I don't want my kids going either because those people are a bunch of bigoted, hateful, angry people and I don't want them anywhere near my kids. You know, that's, that's more of the mentality of what we do here. Now, obviously we would say, I don't think it could be further from the truth. I don't, think, I don't think it could be further from the truth that that's what the church is about. But when you live in a culture that speaks about you that way, it's hard to stay gentle. I think instead what we do is we start to bristle, right? He says, oh, this isn't comfortable. I don't like this. And what do we typically do when someone's forcing us into an uncomfortable position? We fight back. We push out, right? We push back. Don't back me in a corner. Don't you dare uh, mischaracterize me. And when it feels like what might be coming is some actual, literal, physical persecution, when it feels like that might be coming, you know, we get scared and out of our fear, it's fight or flight, right? Right? And many of us want to fight. And so the very first thing that Paul tells us is, do not repay evil for evil. If it is possible, verse 18, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. That's a tall order, isn't it? Has he met everyone? I know you guys have met everyone. It's hard to live at peace with everyone. It really is. And you know, sometimes it doesn't depend on you. How many times have you tried to do the right thing and someone gets angry at you anyway? And then when someone gets angry at you anyway, when you've done the right thing, what's the temptation? Okay, well then I'm done with doing the right thing. If I'm going to be treated like that for doing the right thing, no more Mr. Nice Guy. Just like Jesus, right? Just like Jesus, when they treated him unfairly, his wrath was poured out, right? He called down angels from heaven and smote those Roman soldiers. Remember that? Which gospel was that in? Oh, it's not there. It's not there. 
You see, if we're to be living sacrifices with the mind of Christ, then we actually then and therefore will do the types of things that Jesus did and do the types of things that Jesus does. I share with you my story of uh, being in church, and there was, I was at a, a small church plant, and I was the youth pastor, and I helped as a worship leader. So I was helping this other guy who was the, the lead worshiper. And, and he had this song that we sang, and it, and it said, It's your kindness that leads to repentance. In your love I find forgiveness. And I, I got a little indignant. And I thought, isn't it God's wrath that leads people to repentance? And so I, I go to my dad, who's a pastor, a bit of a theologian. I said, Dad, you won't believe this song we're singing. It says that it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. You know, and I was, in, I was in college. I was in a phase, right? I was thinking, you know, strong and hard. You know, like, God is, you know, people don't take into account the wrath of God. Haven't they read Romans 1? And my dad said, oh, well, actually, that's a verse from Romans 2. And I was like, oh, I didn't read far enough. The Bible teaches that it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. And we think, I'm going to teach this person a lesson. And in order to do that, I need to be harsh with them. I need to be hard. I need to hold them to account. And sometimes we forget that what actually helps people turn around is not a harsh response, but a meek response. Paul says, do not take revenge, dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. So that wrath is there, right? But then he says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. It's a weird, it's kind of a weird verse, right? It's from the book of Proverbs. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. What is that burning coals? What is this? And I've read all sorts of things, all sorts of ideas about what these burning coals are. But I think at the end of the day, in this context of what not only the Proverbs, but also Romans, and, and we have, you know, do not avenge, it is mine to repay, we have to believe that this is something good for the other person. We're not actually like being kind to trick them into receiving their punishment. I'm going to be really nice to them and then God's going to send burning coals onto their head and burn their face off. No, I'm going to be kind to them and I think this is this, uh, like a, I, I, I saw a phrase, the, 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 fire of, the fire of repentance. Like the person sees how you treat them after the way they treated you, and they're like, oh, how could, I have treated, how could I have treated her like that? Look at how she's treating me. It's almost as if kindness would lead people to repentance. It's almost as if the love of God and the love of God's people can actually overcome evil. It's almost as if the words of the Scripture are true, And if we would follow them, we would have these incredibly powerful and wonderful outcomes. It's almost as if instead of trying harder, we could just say, Jesus, will you work through me to impact this person? And as you yield yourself to him, 
Vengeance isn't going to come out. Love's going to come out. You know, we've encouraged you over the years to, to listen to the Lord, to ask the Lord, God, what should I do? Or what do you want to say to me? Or what do I need to know about this? And if the voice in your head is, smite that brother down, that's not Jesus. I know when I've been angry at people and I've actually taken time to pray about it and try to tune into what God is saying, I usually, usually come away with something like, oh, I probably shouldn't have done that other thing that made them mad at me in the first place. Maybe I'm the one who should go apologize. Maybe I'm the one who's in the wrong. Or to have some kind of compassion and say, wow, I wonder what, I wonder what happened to them that they would show up like this for no reason. Because, guys, this is, whether it's uh, someone like this, you know, someone who is really mean or unkind or unfair to you, or whether it's, you know, we're going to talk about the government in just a moment. <laughs> but is that person really your enemy? When Jesus says, love your enemies, I think he's actually kind of alluding to something greater, which is, these people are not really your enemies. We do not fight and war against flesh and blood. If we think about this in warfare terms, uh, the people that we see on the battlefield are not our real enemy. They're the ones who've been drafted and enlisted and forced compulsory military service by our real enemy. So the people that we encounter on the battlefield of life, the people that get in our face and treat us unkind, the people who are who are unfair to us, the people who are mean, the people who say hurtful things about us and about Jesus, they're not really the enemy. They're the ones we're trying to rescue from the enemy. And one of the ways that you can snap someone out of that place of being used by our enemy is to treat them with love and kindness and grace because that's how Jesus treated you when you were his enemy. Remember that from Romans 5, while we were yet enemies of God, Christ died for us. So Paul's trying to, he's, he's taking this theology that he's talked about, and he's saying, what does this theology look like when it's lived out in practice? And so, you go to work tomorrow, and um, you find that somebody has once again Stolen your yogurt. And doggone it, you put your name on it. So they knew they were stealing your yogurt. Well, you've got some options. And these are legitimate options. Uh, you can go to them and say, hey, I noticed that you stole my yogurt. I don't like you stealing my yogurt, but I want you to know I still care about you even if you stole my yogurt. You could go to the store tonight or tomorrow night and you could buy two yogurts and you could put one in there for your friend and one in there for you. That's an option. That would be kind of like, you know, feeding those who are hungry, right? Like, let's get really practical about this. But what you can't do 
in Christ. I mean, you can do this, but you can't do it in Christ. Just go blast that person. Or go tell everybody how so-and-so stole your yogurt. Right? It's like, but pastor, you don't understand. He steals my yogurt all the time. And my response to you will be, the Romans. Paul said this when they were living with the Romans. These are people living in Rome. Half of these people will be dead a couple of decades after this letter is written because there is an outbreak of persecution in Rome against the believers of Christ. So in Christ, you can't blast them. You can either give them a yogurt or you can tell them, hey, I don't like that you take my yogurt, but I'm still going to treat you with respect and honor. Now, I think you can extrapolate that out to much more serious things in life. But here's what happens. The more serious it gets, the harder it is to live like that. Right? So, you know, it's, it's different when, when you're... Uh, I don't think I'm using an example of anyone in this congregation. If I am, it's unintentional. If you're, when, you're, when your neighbor's tree limb falls on your car, you need to be kind to your neighbor, even if they don't want to pay for it. Uh, when, when someone steals your idea at work and gets the promotion, you need to be kind to that person, not blast them, not talk about them behind their backs, I mean, if you need to talk to someone because you just need to process, talk to someone who doesn't work there and doesn't know them. You can't be spreading these, even if they're true, you can't be spreading these things at work about the other person. And when that somebody on Facebook says something that's ridiculous and stupid and mean and wrong, you don't get to just blast them with your fingers on the keyboard because Christ doesn't do that. You can't do that in Christ. You can't do that as you are a living sacrifice. You would literally, you know, I told you that, that the sacrificial language, there's an altar, and they put the sacrifice on the altar, and I said, it's kind of like putting yourself on the altar. You can act like that, but you have to jump off the altar to act like that. And Paul's not saying try harder. He's saying die more. Yield more. Submit more. Surrender more. Don't try harder. Because it's work to get off the altar once you've gotten on it. Which I would suggest you need to do every morning. Let's get on that altar. It's work to get off the altar. He's saying work less. It's work to trash somebody. It's work to, ma- to damage someone's reputation. So he's not saying work more. He's saying surrender more. Yield more. Now, guys, I'm going to tell you, I have no business preaching this sermon to you because I struggle with this too. I want, if someone does something to me, and you guys, you don't see it a lot, but if someone does something to me, I kind of want to get back at them. And when I say kind of want to get back at them, I get back at them. (laughs) And not necessarily in some aggressive, big, powerful way, but you know, you're going to get it. So I'm not saying this as someone who stays on the altar. I'm saying this as someone who knows how many times I've gotten off the altar. Man, I've gotten off the altar so many times. But I don't want to keep getting off the altar. I want to be a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, 
I want to be transformed by the renewing of my mind. So there's this, do not overcome evil by evil, but overcome evil with good is not some ethic that Paul's pulling out of somewhere. It's just the gospel being applied to life. Because when I was evil, God didn't overcome my evil with evil. He overcame my evil with good. And when you were saved, God didn't overcome your evil with evil. He overcame your evil with good. And it's like that servant who owes, you know, $50 and the master, I'm sorry, it's like the, the servant who owes like tens of thousands of dollars and the master forgives him. And then he goes to his neighbor who owes him $50 and he casts him into jail because he doesn't repay the debt. What will the master do when he finds out about that wicked servant? Will he commend him? No. He'll condemn him. How dare you not forgive this little thing when I've forgiven this great big thing? And so part of having the mind of Christ is to understand that what you've been forgiven is not small. How many of us have after years of being Christians, we've moved from a place of, God, have mercy on me, a sinner, to a place of, Lord, thank you that I'm not like them. Do you know that story? All of our Christian life is lived in, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. All of it. And it actually helps us to be more gracious to others. What about when it's not the guy at work? What if it's the Congress or the President? What if it's the Supreme Court? What if it's the, the laws of Massachusetts? What if it's the, the governor? What if you live in a state that's passing all sorts of laws that you don't agree with? A state or a country that is doing in the schools things that should never be done in schools and that we find it hard to tolerate in any kind of way. Well, then we can brandish our swords, right? Verse 1 of 13, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Just in case you didn't catch it the first time. Who installs kings? Who? God. Who installs presidents of the United States? It's the voters, right? God has infinite power over nations and kingdoms, but not over democracies because we vote, right? I don't want to say this to you in a way that makes you think, oh, I shouldn't vote, or it doesn't matter. It does, because God works through human beings. But God is the one, ultimately, who decides who sits in that house, painted white in Washington, D.C., God's the one who installs governors, city council, school boards, 
Supreme Courts, District Courts, police officers. God's the one who puts these people in position, and he does it for a very interesting reason. And we're going to see that reason in a second. He does it because he, just like he has agents in the church operating as the hands and feet of Christ to the world, he has agents on earth that are extending the function of his wrath against wrongdoers. So God puts these people in place. Consequently, verse 2, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on wrongdoers. Romans 1, folks. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. You know, the way it kind of works is that God is in authority over us, and he uses the government as his agents, and then we submit to God by submitting to the government. He says, this is why you pay taxes. I hope you pay your taxes. This is why. Because God created that government to exercise his authority on the earth. For, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. So they need to be paid. They need to be paid for their work. You know... You know how in uh, certain areas of government you have like a minister of such and such and a minister of such and such, right? You think, why that word minister? But a minister means a servant. So in the same way that I'm a minister and that each of us as the priesthood of believers are ministers of God, so the government is a different type of minister of God. So he says, give to every, he says, give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. But I think the assumption here is that you do owe taxes, you do owe revenue, you do owe respect, and you do owe honor. So let's just get really like clear about this. As a Christian, living on the altar. Can you say, let's go, Brandon? I don't think you can. Not while you're on the altar. You can get off the altar and say it, but not on the altar. Can you disagree with Brandon? <laughs> Absolutely. You can disagree with Joe Biden. You can disagree with any leader. You have, that's totally fine. But can you dishonor them? Not while you're on the altar. Can you, can you resist unjust laws? What about that one? And you can. There's lots of precedent for that in the scripture. 
I love the story where, I believe it's Peter and John or before the religious leaders who are also political leaders. And they say, look, guys, you've got to stop preaching about Jesus. You've got to cut this out. And Peter's like, wait. Uh, God's the one who told us to talk about Jesus. So do you want us to obey you or do you want us to obey God? And here's the deal. We're going to obey God and then you can do whatever you want to to us. You see the dynamic? When the authorities over you, because remember, God, government, us, when the authorities step out of their covering, out of their authority that they're under from God and do something contrary to God, then you owe obedience to God, not to those governing authorities. But be aware, you must then, in a Christ-like manner, submit to all the punishments that may come your way. Well, Pastor, how can you say that? Well, because the Bible tells you to. This is worth turning to, by the way, First Peter. It's near the end. It's very relevant to this passage. In First Peter 2, in verse 11, 1 Peter 2.11, Dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans, among the unbelievers, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by Him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. It's almost like Peter's writing a commentary on Romans, 12, on Romans 13. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. The emperor who is going to murder Christians. Honor him. The emperor who is going to deprive you of your property. Honor him. The emperor who is going to make it his mission in life to make your life a living hell, honor him. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. And here it is. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. It's commendable, brothers and sisters. It is commendable to suffer harm for doing the right thing. How is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called. Why? Because of the gospel. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Guys, I want to make this really clear. Every single commandment, every single calling, every single example, every single invitation of the New Testament, it's always because of the gospel. So in a sense, the Christian ethic is similar to other ethics in the world in terms of what we do. But the why we do it is always different. It's always uniquely the gospel. You need to submit to the authorities because Jesus submitted to the authorities when he went to die on the cross. You need to honor those above you and be gentle with those who persecute you because Jesus did the same thing when he died for you. 
You are called to suffer for righteousness' sake. Why? Because Jesus suffered already on your behalf. And I'll say this. I think for most of us, there, there are some examples in the, in the country, I know. But for most of us, we don't fear that the government is going to steal our property or put us to death because we follow Jesus. Okay? Is that fair? Probably not. The day may come when you are. And if we can't honor our governors and, uh, and the God-appointed agents on this earth, on this, in this country now, how are we going to do it when it gets hot and heavy? If we can't manage our social media account, how can we manage real persecution? If we can't hold our tongues when people are implementing policies we don't like, how are we going to hold our tongues when, when we're being beaten and jailed unjustly? And not hold our tongues in that we don't say anything, but that we respond the way Jesus responded. Do you remember when Jesus is before the, uh, he's on his trial, and, and the high priest speaks to him, and he speaks back to him. Do you remember this? And someone says, do you know that's the high priest you're talking to? And Jesus says, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't. My apologies. That's crazy. Isn't that something? When Jesus realized that what he said was to the high priest, everything he said was true. He's like, oh, all due respect, sir. Because that high priest was great? No, because God instituted an authority in Israel called a high priest. And Jesus honors God. That's why he honors the high priest. So we don't honor our president because our president's a good president. It's irrelevant. We honor our president because God instituted the presidency. We don't honor the Supreme Court because the Supreme Court is righteous. We honor the Supreme Court because God created the Supreme Court. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. For there's no authority except that which God has established. By the way, you honor your teacher students because God put those teachers there. And by the way, parents, you honor their teachers too and their principal and their school board and their, I forget what you call the head of the, the superintendent. You honor them. You know, you guys may not remember this, but there was a, there was a church in Counter Church and they met in the middle school here in town for a number of years. And the superintendent, because of some outside pressure, uh, he, he was going to kick them out. He said, look, you've got X amount of time. It was a short amount of time. And he said, you've got to be out. You've got to find a new place. We're not going to rent to you anymore. Which is totally fair. I mean, the, the school can rent to whoever it wants to, right? They weren't doing anything illegal, nothing immoral. But we certain, I certainly wasn't happy about it, and they certainly weren't happy about it because they couldn't find a place to meet. And so uh, I had met the superintendent before, and so I emailed him. I said, hey, there's a couple of us pastors in town. We'd like to come talk to you just to see what's going on. Uh, and I invited two or three other pastors from town to come. We didn't invite Encounter, just 
people who, you know, church leaders who were not, didn't have a, a dog in the fight, right, so to speak, personally. We said, hey, uh, we understand that you're not doing anything wrong. And we understand that you've got a hard job to do. I mean, how do you please all these people, right? Some people are upset that you're renting to a church. Some people are upset that the thing's rented out every weekend. They can't rent it, so it's like it's tied up. Uh, you know, there's different reasons that you're getting this pressure. We understand that. Uh, you know, we know what it's like to try to please people, right? Not that we have this problem here at all. I'm just saying, like in general, right? That's just a joke. And we just talked to him about it. We said, you know, it's actually really hard to find a place to meet as a church. I don't know if you're aware of that. It's not easy to uh, just turn this thing over in, you know, six weeks. And he heard us out. And he said, you know what? I mean, right there in the meeting without talking to anyone, you know what? I'm going to give him a six-month extension. We're like, wow. That's amazing. But imagine if we had gone in there, what are you doing? This is a church of Jesus Christ. You can't kick them out. Who do you think you're? It's illegal. You're, this, is, this is Christian discrimination. We're going to take you to court. Do you think he would have said, you know what, guys? You're right. I'm going to give him a six-month extension. No, he probably would have hired an attorney to get ready for a fight while they got kicked out and had no place to go. You know, this is, it's very practical, but, it's, but more so, you know, like Peter says, you know, it, it just doesn't make sense to do it any other way, uh, but also it's wrong to do it any other way. Paul says it's necessary not only because of punishment, but also as a matter of conscience, right? And so as believers, we, we need to be ready and we need to be willing now to stay on the altar when things we don't like happen. You can oppose them. You can, you can uh, have a peaceful protest. You can, you can gather people to vote a certain way. Go to the polls. Do all these things. You know, we have the benefit in this country where, you know, even though God is orchestrating these things, and He is, that doesn't mean we don't have any agency or any part to play. So by all means, be politically engaged. But as you're politically engaged, you can't act like the other people who are politically engaged. Right? You don't, you don't get to lie about your political opponents. You don't get to say nasty things about the people in charge. You can tell why you disagree with them. Jesus does that, by the way. Jesus is very, Jesus is strongly explaining why he thinks the religious leaders are in the wrong when they're in the wrong. But when Jesus is taken to his trial, when he's taken knowingly to his death, he treats the people around him with honor and respect. He doesn't lash out. So if Jesus has done that for you, if he's your exemplar, if he's your model, if he's the one who's living through you as you live on that altar, then you're going to show up a very different way. Does that make sense? So church, I urge you, give everyone what you owe them. Pay your taxes. Give the revenues. I think most of us do that. The, 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 the consequence of not doing that is a lot steeper than saying, let's go, Brandon. Right? 
But also, if you owe respect, then give respect. And if you owe honor, then give honor. And let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. You know, it's amazing. It's amazing how all the things, all really difficult things that God asks us to do, sometimes complex and complicated things that God asks us to do, they really do all boil down to one thing, don't they? God loves you like crazy. And so you can love others too. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we are a weak people. We're not a very consistent people. I know for myself, as I've already acknowledged, just how difficult it is to stay on the altar sometimes. It's not always an easy place to be. It can be a painful place to be. And yet, Lord, as we remember that Jesus was willing to stay on that cross for us, and that he was able to uh, look to the joy that was on the other side, look to the victory that was on the other side, as he was invited to, uh, as he invites us then to, to carry that cross and to walk the path that he's walked. Lord, help us to trust you, because that's what it all boils down to. The righteous will live by faith. Lord, trust you that you know how to get done whatever it is that needs to get done. If it's, if somebody needs to be corrected, Lord, you can correct them, not me. Lord, if there's some vengeance that needs to be had, you will have it, not me. God, if there is an authority in my life, I can trust that you have put it there even when it's hard. And that if that authority steps out of your authority, I may pay a price for it, but I can trust that you'll have me even then and you will commend me. You will honor me as I honor those who are in positions of authority. God, I do pray in this moment that when that happens, because it's not an if but a when, that you give us the courage to face the consequences of following you instead of that authority. But also give us, Lord, the grace and the wisdom to disobey in a way that still honors, that still shows respect, and that still is done in the manner of Jesus Christ. So, Lord, we, what we really need is more of him in our lives. Lord, would you draw us continually day by day into the presence of Jesus? Lord, would you help us to be alert to and understand and live out of that relationship we have with him? And God, may the fruit of your Holy Spirit be evident in our lives, not because we've tried harder, but because we've yielded more. In Jesus' name. Amen.